Welcome everybody to Sabremesa podcast. Sitting with us today, we have Lamine Zarad, who has an incredible, powerful story and uh, in, in an incredible journey as a refugee, as a U.S. immigrant, and then achieving great financial success, uh, having sold several of his tech companies. Now he's building something really cool and innovative with Stellarify in the fintech space. And Lamine is also a very opinionated and just an interested person to hang out with. Um, so we're going to talk about cultural topics, financial inclusion, the U.S. macro, and hopefully try to answer the elusive question of, is the U.S. consumer basically screwed with credit card debts at all-time high, or are they navigating the turbulence you know, better than expected? So with that, Lamine, welcome to, to Sarbra Mesa. Thank you so much, Matthias. I do have very strong opinions about things, so <laughs> that's that's what we That's what we want. That's what we're looking for. Uh, so let's let's start from the beginning, Lamine, and... and Maybe walk us through your childhood and, and how did you get here, basically? You have a powerful story and journey that I'm sure it colored a lot of the decisions along the way. And then we can look at Stellarify and the things you've done through the lens of those experiences. For sure. I, I think founders and people in general, I think, uh, you know, build their identities based on, you know, those building blocks, right? Their experiences in life uh, that sort of imprint themselves. Uh Refugee experience is probably one of the more prominent ones. And I think every refugee has a story. Not many of them get told. Uh, but I, I do like to share mine because a lot of um, there are a lot of similarities across board. And, and I wanted the folks to hear it. I wanted the folks to know that, you know, there's a there's a path forward and you can you can do great things in life and you can actually leverage some of those hardships. Uh, and, you know, in many ways, I don't like to use this word, but people call this the sort of hardship blessing, right? It puts things in perspective for you. It gives you a nice uh, baseline to, to start operating from and so forth. Anyway, my story, uh, you know, begins in the former USSR and uh, Soviet Union. Now, now a country of Azerbaijan back then was one of the republics. Uh, my mother um, is half Azeri, half Armenian, which was uh, a very kind of a toxic uh, ethnicity or combination uh, because of the sort of historical conflict that occurred there uh, for really many centuries between you know, Turks and Armenians. Uh, it's both ethnic. Um, it's also religious in many ways. My father's Tunisian. He was studying um, at the time Soviet law. He, uh, you know, he was one of the many African students who was sort of drawn to USSR because they, they thought that this is the way to uh, to stabilize uh, systems uh, using, you know, sort of communist ideals. And in Africa, you know, it was a battleground uh, back in the seventies. And so, in any case, they met. She was his Russian language tutor, um, and uh, it was love story, right? They got married, and here I am. But fast forward to nineteen eighty nine. Soviet Union's falling apart. Um, and although I had a very privileged existence in the USSR because my father was a foreigner, so we could travel anytime we wanted to. I spent you know, my summers in Tunisia. We traveled back through Europe. It was just an amazing experience. I never really experienced the, the doom and gloom of the, of the Soviet empire because we, we were also living on the outskirts, right? Away from Moscow, away from the, you know, the Iron Curtain, so to speak. Um, but anyway, Soviet Union fell apart. Uh, the, the now newly sort of a Foreign country, although they, they didn't rationalize it back then that way, they were just, you know, figuring things out. Decided that, hey, we're going to rearrange some things. We're going to, you know, we're going to move some some people around, and uh, and as a result, uh, it turned into what's called now Baku pogroms. Uh, many Armenians perished, uh, other ethnicities, Jews, Russians, and so forth, and uh, we fled. We fled with basically clothes on, on our back. We couldn't, we didn't have time. We couldn't really like save anything, bring anything with us. Jumped on a train. Uh, and uh, and rode to Moscow overnight, and so spent um, uh, my early adolescent years between ten and sixteen in Moscow, uh, undocumented as a refugee, 
uh, with my family with absolutely no no access to any resources. Um, that's a very long story. Many interesting lessons learned there. This is where I sort of cut my entrepreneurial teeth uh, and and having to you know basically survive. You know we we were selling things like you know bootlegged VHS tapes on the streets and doing things like helping tourists get around the city. Uh, and uh, you know really kind of understood how to how to tell how to talk to people, how to sell stories, how to you know position myself as an expert in many different ways. Uh, you know a skill that I carried with with me through life and I always had entrepreneurial you know desires and aspirations I think you're kind of born with it you really can't help it but you know at the time I did not know how to I didn't have a clear vision or I didn't have a clarity in terms of like this is what I want to do I want to, I want to be an entrepreneur you know everyone around me basically saying hey you have to study and the only way to climb out of this rut is educate yourself you know you have to understand the world and to an extent it's very true right um, so people are smart enough to pick up that knowledge on their own uh, others need kind of structured education uh, experience to like, so someone can point you where to find that knowledge. I think I was latter. Like I, I needed time to incubate, right? I was, I was, I was ambitious. I was young, but I was also very young focused. Anyway, yeah, I mean, you got to the, to the States at 16. Is that right? Yeah. At 16, we, we did, fled. Did Russia. you speak English or not? I spoke some English. So when I was in Russia, uh, you know, we would work with like uh, tourists and like American missionaries and, and things like that. And I picked up I was I was quick, you know. Language is kind of my thing. I can pick up most languages pretty. I mean, easy. it's 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 yeah, it's amazing. Because at sixteen, you're you're not that young, right? Because you could. I think Napoleon fled from Corsica to well to mainland France, and he still got an accent at nine. That's right. So <laughs> that's crazy. That's right. And the thing is, Slavic accents are very difficult to get rid of. But I think it's because I grew up with uh, with Arabic and French in a household um, and Russian, and so that picking up English was not an issue. Uh yeah, I mean, and I enjoyed it. I mean, English was like the language of culture and pop culture specifically. I watched movies, you know, I listened to music, like many, many teens around the world. It was always like the language of cool things that, you know, you sort of wanted to do. So, um, but yeah, I came to US uh, and uh, and we landed in Georgia, um, you know, I finished high school here and then I joined the Marines. To me, Marine Corps was a really interesting pathway. Uh, not the most obvious. People told me. No, well, yeah. That, how how you know, what was that decision process? You you said I'm I'm an American now. I'm gonna try to do the most American thing and and serve for the country. What? Uh, what was, yeah, I don't know yeah. if this is. I don't know if it was the most American thing. It's funny. People, everyone who knew me was like, "Man, you're not cut out for this. Don't do this." And I think I was always very competitive. Um, you know, when I came to US, like I played football. Like I never played football in my entire life. Uh, I played soccer growing up, and uh, I was like, I'm going to do this American thing, and I played football in, in high school in Georgia, where it's like really serious and competitive, and I just got out there, and you know, and I lived up to it, you know, <laughs> and the same thing with the Marine Corps, I felt like it was, um, it was such a challenge, like, I knew, for example, that one of my uh, missing pieces in my like personal education and development was lack of discipline, I, um, I never had that, like my parents never instilled that, you know, we were sort of kind of surviving, and I was, I was on my own, and I was figuring out how to like be disciplined, in order to survive, but there was no foresight, right? I didn't have a whole lot of like planning skills. And I knew that military kind of sort of like people told me that it instills it in you. Uh, but because I'm super competitive, I didn't want to just, just do military. I was like, I'm going to do Marines. I'm like the hardest thing out there, <laughs> the most difficult thing. Uh, anyway, so I joined and, um, you know, it's a complex experience. I can't, like people ask me all the time, like, do you regret it? Do you think it's amazing? It's a paradox of sorts. It's probably the best and the worst thing that I did to uh, to myself. <laughs> in, in what way? What what would, what would you say was one of the worst things? And then what things do you cherish and maybe apply into day to day or yeah. even business? For sure. And and there's so much positive that, and I always talk about positive publicly because you know it's important, you know, not to talk trash about your experiences. 
But yeah. the the truth is, you know, military can be a stunting experience in many different ways. It's uh, it's not necessarily conducive to free thinking and uh, uh, and creativity. And and I was always a very creative person, but it was paradoxically for me, it I was like a like a spring, right? I, I was wind back by the military so far back that by the time I got out, I just projected forward at a much faster pace than I otherwise would have been moving through my career. Uh, and so that's the paradox of it all. Like, I feel like I was, I was definitely held back and I would pull back even further than I would have otherwise been intellectually in a creative way and so many different things. And then when I got out, I was like, I got to have it all. I got to have my the knowledge. I, I, you know, I, I took crazy like academic load in college and then went to grad school and I just want to, I just want to learn things. You know? <laughs> so that's probably the, the simplest way to explain it. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Totally. And then I'm, 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 shifting towards kind of the future and, and, and skipping a bunch of things in the middle but yeah. we'll, we'll get to it in a bit but you've you know long story short you've you've had uh great success financially speaking you know especially looking back when you were fleeing something probably unimaginable at that moment so i'm sure how you approach business today is pretty different from what you probably the stability that you were looking for when you when you got into the into the marines so it, if you have to think about the you know what's next for you or, or if you had to aim really 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 high uh what what do you want to achieve in your lifetime next after what you've done so far yeah i mean i forget who said this but um i think success is not measured by what you have it is measured by how far you've come right and i i sometimes have to pause and look at that that journey and man it's a it's a long journey and it's crazy. It's, uh, it's a, it's a really crazy journey. And when I think about it, the, if I was to map it out in like a two-dimensional plane, you know, it is a hockey stick, right, of an ascent. And sometimes I forget it because you get kind of caught in, uh, in, in the grind of it all. Uh, but I also feel many different ways that I'm just getting started. Like I'm, you know, I don't feel like, oh, my God, I've, I've made it. I've achieved it. I feel like I'm getting started. I just now have a lot more fuel. Uh, I have, you know, I have tools that I didn't have before. So instead of like, you know, scrambling things together. Uh, it's not like I'm I'm comfortable, and, and I, I'm, it's not like I'm I'm complacent, but I have stuff, and I I can make even more stuff now. So that's kind of how I feel. So when I think about where I'm I'm headed, um, my aspirations have changed as well. You know, the whole Maslow's hierarchy of need, uh, it's it's an interesting concept, right? Where you know when you sort of uh, ascend it, you start with something very basic, you know, physical security, and I certainly like existed a good portion of my life in that um, that portion, that that very baseline part of the pyramid. Or the things that matter to me is like my physical safety and being able to eat and drink and not die. Uh, now that I'm much higher on a hierarchy, I'm thinking about self-actualization more than anything else. And, and, it, and it reflects in my product. It's, it's the product's not just about, you know, like solving a, a problem for the consumer that they will pay for. Yes, that is very true. It has to be there. But I'm also thinking about cultural impact. Uh, I want to build uh, one of the most culturally impactful solutions out there that to truly like change the course uh, of the of the social development, you know, when we think about our product, and we haven't even talked about, you know, what I've built and what we'll we, get there. Yeah, we'll get there in a minute. I think about the paradigm of credit uh, that hasn't changed since the beginning. And you know, I'm not naive enough to think that well, I can wave a magic wand and suddenly humans will behave differently. But at the same time, you know, human history shows that there are inflection points, and technology is pivotal in those inflection points. And I feel like the timing is there. What we build structurally is there. It's really execution. And we can change the way people, you know, uh, their relationship with credit in general, starting where, you know, what, what, what we do with bill pay. So anyway, 
Uh, hopefully, that so let's let, let's let's get into that. Uh, let me let in a nutshell what's what's Stellarify, and and then I want to get back to what you were talking about the history of credit and how Stellarify fits into this you know broader uh, time frame. Yeah, for sure. Um, what is Stellarify? Stellarify today, in its most um, sort of um, you know basic form, uh, let's just uh, say that is a bill pay product that helps consumers link their bills, pay their bills, and then build credit right, as a as a sort of a you know, output of this bill pay process. The reason I started Stellarify, this is a story. Obviously, it's linked to my you know my, my background experiences with uh, with just finance in the United States and capitalism and all those other different things. Uh, the reason we build uh, Stellify is, is because of this massive discovery uh, that I and the revelation I had. Um, my last company got acquired by a legal tech company called Zen Business. And Zen Business um, was a legal tech that sort of resembled LegalZoom in many different ways. And after the acquisition, because my last company was a, a holistic SMB banking solution, we broadened the, the scope of what we did to go after um, physical businesses, service-based businesses, and offer them a solution that helped them start, run, and grow their business. That was our framework, right? Everything from like starting and forming your business, compliance, legal stuff, to running your business, which means accounting, banking, uh, CRM, marketing tools, uh, and then growing, like you know, helping with ads and a bunch of other things. And so one thing that was missing from that formula was credit. And we struggled with it and we tried. And uh, and frankly, I was obsessed with that problem because was, I wanted to solve it. Uh, but it was in the context of you know small businesses. And I stood up a relationship with Experian and had access to like all of the data and, and realized that, holy crap, like this is not just entrepreneurs that struggling with business. It's not just immigrants, because I knew immigrants were, you know, from my background. It's not marginalized groups in this country. It's two-thirds of the adult population in the United States. Uh, and when we looked at the data, it's not because people don't have the money, right? Because that's the normal assumptions. Like, well, you know, folks are, uh, it's the United States, not what it used to be. People don't have all of the resources, yada, yada. That's not true. People have the money. Uh, people, however, mismanaging their bills. <laughs> Uh, and the reason I say this with certainty is because data shows that folks actually do pay their bills. They just pay them habitually late, 45 days within the due date. And we've seen that in our system. God knows. Uh, <laughs> it's not There's payment easy. intention, but there's just a mismatch yeah. of, of cash. Mismatch, revenue. precisely. Yeah. Mismatch uh, for various reasons. Some just irrational exuberance, like, oh, man, I want to buy something nice. Sometimes it's, you know. It's, it's social pressures, sometimes necessity, whatever, whatever reason it is, sometimes it's just, uh, you know, uh, folks having too many bills and they're sort of juggling things around uh, just because anyway, so they're late. We said, man, if we can influence that behavior, both mechanically by creating guardrails and just creating discipline around repayment through incentives and disincentives, we're not just building credit, right? We're not just solving that problem. That's just one of the symptoms. We go into first principles here. We go into the very root of the, of the problem. We're creating a better consumer. We're creating a better borrower. And that is massively valuable to the society. And uh, let me stop you there, Lemmy, because if, yeah. if if I stopped you 30 seconds ago, that could have been the pitch for the earned wage access solutions out there. Because I say, okay, there's a mismatch. These guys will get paid eventually. Right. Let me advance the salary to you That's and right. then solve things. But now you took a detour. And so yeah. here, here's where when the innovation comes in. Yeah, precisely. Uh, thanks for that. So, you know, we looked at 
early wage access. And that's one of the solutions is saying that, hey, you're going to get money eventually. You need money today. You don't have it today. Let's give you money. We said, no, no, that's not the right way of doing it. A, you're exposing yourself to too much risk. You're sort of putting your neck out there. Yeah, there are ways to mitigate that risk through like integrations with you know payroll providers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but generally speaking, we thought that's not the best thing to do is to give someone access to capital that they haven't really earned or partially earned. We thought what they really need is, a, is help uh, managing their bills. And if we can help them manage those bills, we don't have to give them money sort of like, so to speak earlier. Yes, we, we confront our cash to pay the bill, but we do it in an isolated way, focusing on individual bills, therefore creating efficiency both for the company itself so we can operate at scale. We don't have to have these massive facilities behind us like early wage access companies. Uh, taking out, you know, sort of a intermediaries, uh, you know, in terms of lenders and so forth. We also, you know, working with a consumer to be more responsible through these ultra short-term advances, we're really using their money. Yeah, our money is uh, at risk for, you know, hours, but then they pay us back right away, right? And so it's not that we're lending, is that we're helping them manage their own flow. Uh, using software, right? Can, and, can and, we put a very simple example just to, to paint the picture and make it very clear yeah. for people? Like maybe using the the you know Netflix subscription and things that people yeah. already pay for, and now you're just for advancing sure. that to create credit. For sure. So um, so we basically reversed engineered a credit card and and created a, a completely new product as a result. Uh, <clears throat> so a credit card works in a very you know simple way, right? I give you a card with basically a lot revolving on a credit piece of plastic that you use to interact with merchants. You get out there, you swipe it, uh, you use our money like as a company, for example, and then you pay us back, right? And and you can sort of have whatever schedule you want in, that in terms of you can carry balance and definitely you do all kinds of things. Obviously pay interest, your fees, it's expensive. That's how companies offset risk. We said that let's not do that. Let's not charge consumers interest. Let's not do any lending per se in, in a traditional way. Let's come up with a new way of uh, credit card. So instead of giving you a card and saying, have at it, do whatever you want, here's you know spending limit. We say, link your bills. Uh, and we don't have traditional underwriting. We don't care whether you have a good credit, bad credit, whatever. You link your bills. Uh, we look at your bank account balance. Something that, by the way, the lenders have done in SMB space for a while, but never in consumer space. We're the first ones to do it. We're looking at your you know, historic balance fluctuations, your cash flows, and we say, all right, cool. You linked $3,000 in your bills. It's rent, it's utilities, it's Netflix. Uh, and, uh, and you have the money. You've been paying those things uh, out of your bank account. We can see that. So now that you know your rent is due, what we do is we, when you set it up, when you set up the bill, you also agree to auto pay. And just like you would with a credit card, right? You can set auto pay, you have manual. We kind of create uh, a flow where auto pay is very prioritized. And so most of our customers select auto pay. Uh, so your bill is due. We use our money to pay your bill. Uh, but before we do that, we, we reference our data uh, to check your bank account, both your existing balance and fluctuations to make sure you're still in good standing, that you have a paycheck coming. And then we remit a payment, right? We use our money, we pay it. And then you pay us back. Uh, because you already set the auto bill, uh, you know, what we do is we'll withdraw it within 24 to 48 hours, and the money is now uh, applied toward the line of credit we just gave you. It's good for us because we're managing on risk. It's good for you because you don't have a balance that you carry uh, indefinitely. And, because and you're, creating a, you're creating a credit transaction when before there wasn't anything there. You were paying maybe thousands of dollars or hundreds of dollars exactly. for rent. And now you're just creating that real credit transaction that helps you build that trade score. Precisely. We we put our neck on the line, so to speak, albeit for a short period of time, right? And yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a credit transaction. Our money is on, on, on the line. There is risk. Yes, you can you cannot pay us, right? Effectively. 
Uh, you can cancel you out of pay. You can do all kinds of things as a consumer to gain the system. So the risk is there. It's important for it to be there. Uh, we, want to, we want to manage it, but we also cannot get rid of it because otherwise there was no credit. Uh, and if there's no credit, there's no way to build credit. <laughs> And so that is the know, yeah the famous credit paradox, right? And in, in, and that to me, look, I'm from Argentina, and this this was a foreign concept for me too. Like I had a job when I got here, like a high paying job. I couldn't get access to a credit card. I could not get access to a credit card because I didn't have credit, and so I did, I, I wasn't in debt. So I couldn't show that I could actually pay my debt, my bills. So it's yeah. um it's it's interesting. It is fascinating, right? And uh, and we can talk about the U.S. Um, as a society and and, and just the, the culture of credit. I'm happy to, to digress. That'd be uh, great. Yeah, go down that path. But anyway, let's let's kind of wrap it up here. Like well, that's what we do, right? It's elegant. It's simple. It's not intrusive. We're not adding additional debt to your profile as a consumer. We're just helping you be better. And if you're better, your credit goes up. Uh, but you also, you know, now can borrow more money, and manage it better, right? As well. So the the goal is to kind of cycle you back into the economy and let you participate in a, in a full way. And that's, that's a good segue into why you should be cycled back into the economy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I know we would love to, to get your take on maybe even, I don't know if the history of FICO yeah. or the history of the credit score, but like just that's to understand right. how do we, how do we got here in the first place? Cause Stellarify is a response to how the system is working yeah. today. And so if the system would have been differently, the solution would have been other, another, but how yeah. do we even get here in the first place? Man, we, we have to go way back. Uh, I think way way beyond FICO uh, and beyond America, really. We have to go back to the beginning of human history. If um, you know, if you ever read this book by Neil Ferguson called The Ascent of Money, it's a great yeah. book that kind of illustrates, you know, what is money? And most people have no idea, right? It's so abstract, but it's a very important mechanism. Uh, it's a mechanism of trust. And so when you think about credit and money, they're they've always been highly, highly, highly correlated. In many cases, one and the same. So uh, in human history, you know, money was always represented with like some unit of representation, whether it, you know, it's a seashell rocks or whatever. When society started to get uh, more complicated, you know, in the agrarian age, when people you know, became more um, less nomadic and more focused on like staying in one place and building, you know, value, um, you know, those farmers like they had to start trading things uh, with each other, and uh, and naturally intermediaries were sort of like popped up and those intermediaries initially called proto-banks um there were temples right there there were places of worship where people trusted they trusted the the priests that trusted the institution and and they could put grain inside of a temple knowing that it's sacred no one's gonna like you know get out there and raid it and so those temples started to create credit really like if i gave you a bunch of grain or something precious furs or whatever it may be uh, i have to give you something you know in return and it became kind of money right units of measure and so credit is very important um, to creating and creating leverage. So now instead of me and my wealth being sort of defined by amount of grain I have, uh, I can actually go borrow more stuff knowing knowing that I'm, I'm predictable and in, in how much I produce. And the temple knows that I'm going to you know repay and they can now give me something else. So they created markets and, and liquidity around those markets. And it's fascinating because that was, you know, very early on in human development as, as like, you know, civilization. And it hasn't changed. <laughs> that That's the paradigm that sort of stayed fairly constant throughout. And it made sense that it hasn't changed early on because credit was predicated on trust and the fact that there's no guarantees and opaque nature of like availability of repayment. You know, it's 
someone trusting someone that they're going to give them money back and predicting whether you're going to be a, a good b- uh, borrower and repayer. Well, that, well that's a, that's the interesting thing. Like, how do you measure that trust? And so in the case of FICO is by uh, taking debt and being able to pay that debt. But it's not just looking at what you've done. Like, I think there's other potential sources of finding out if you're credit worthy or not, but the U.S. took so- one specific route. Totally. Let's fast forward to like United States. So, you know, U.S. Uh, post-World War II uh, going through, a, you know, an economic boom and uh, and specifically consumer boom. Uh, consumerism is like born as, as it stands today. Uh, brands flushed with money, you know, selling stuff that consumers never had access to before. You know, washing machines, vacuum cleaners, all this household stuff. And consumers don't have enough in savings, but everyone's making a lot of money because the economy is booming. Everyone's getting jobs, surplus. And so, uh, you know, banks and lenders uh, had to fill the void and they said, hey, we want to give you money because we know that you have jobs and there are plenty of jobs out there if you lose this one. Um, and so uh, unsurprisingly, two very smart uh, engineers and mathematicians in Silicon Valley uh, said, hey, there's a way to, uh, you know, to create maybe a, a score of sorts, right? Like to help these lenders because they don't have access. They, they're sort of like operating with a blindfold with a whole new demographic, these new uh, consumers who are now, you know, sort of nouveau rich, if you will, right? A full post-world war, have access to money, but they really don't know how to like you know, capture that. And then let's, let's, let's automate this and let's create, you know, some transparency and efficiency. And it was brilliant. And it was um, it was a Fair Isaac Corporation. I think uh, I forget their names, but you know one. I think one FICO book. is the two names, right? Is is that's 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 what it stands for? Yeah, it, yeah. It's like Bill Bill Isaac and something Fair. I forget. Uh, I forget. But there, it was quite literally uh, at Stanford where this was created, and uh, and so Stanford Stanford Research Institute actually. And anyway, so they were like, hey, let's create this thing, and and so they created FICO, uh, not the score, but they created the company in the 50s. And so created the credit report, a concept of a credit report that basically took something that was opaque, uh, pulled the data on your repayment from other self-reported sources where, you know, one lender said, hey, Matthias is great, man. He, he borrowed a thousand dollars and he paid it back in, you know, in four months. And now this is predictive of whether you're going to do it again. Right. And, uh, and that was, that was fantastic. And by 19, I think 89, they said, let's just create a dynamic score that represents all of this, all of those different inputs. And so FICO score was born in the eighties when, you know, it was another boom, so to speak, right? And, the, and then things were looking up. Uh, it's great, it's still, believe it, believe it or not, and I don't care what any FinTech founder says, it is still one of the most effective predictors of whether you're gonna repay on your debt uh, out of any other model out there, because it's got so much data and it's so effective. And, it's, and they have a bunch of different models, right? Like 60 different models out there that are highly specialized and industry-based. However, there's a problem. The problem is that, you know, you have a score that is designed for something very specific to predict whether you're gonna be a good borrower when you borrow money. But the scope in its application has been expanded well beyond borrowing. And so now you have employers who use that score to say, hey, hey, you know, are you gonna be a good employee? Are you gonna, you know, are you gonna be a bad employee? Absurd, there's some correlation there, but it's absurd. Um, insurance companies use that score to predict whether you're going to be a good driver or not, and whether you're going to like default on your on your payments to the insurance company. Some correlation, but not not very effective. Um, I mean, every everyone from uh, from landlords to like I said, employers and and everything in between, it is slowly expanding into being a good citizenship score. 
which is problematic. It's not designed for that purpose. Um, and so we think it's a, you know, it's an issue and that's a paradigm that's just not going to, not going to survive the test of time. And this is why we exist. We want do you to think the, paradigm. the, with what you're saying, do you think it, it sort of reinforces certain socioeconomic classes, the FICO score it, unintentionally, maybe without a doubt. Right. Because there's a strong, once it gets correlation, not causation, but you know, if, um, if you come from a higher sort of socioeconomic strata, a, you have education, so you know how to navigate, and this it's it's very game game. Uh, you, it's it's easy to game. I, I don't know how to <laughs> articulate. Uh, if you know the rules, it's yeah. really easy to game. That's all we build. We help we help consumers understand this thing and to play the game by the rules. Uh, and so, if you come with um, you know with some education because your family have clearly been navigating this and and they sort of empower you, then you have an advantage. On top of that, if you have resources, you have an advantage, right? Even if you get behind, you can pay off and catch up and so forth. So, uh, so your score is very much informed by this privilege, and and yes, if uh, if you, if I'm using the score uh, as a society, then I am I'm truly sort of exacerbating the problem. But it also, to- it's not only correlation because at the end of the day, it might be uh, like a self fulfilling prophecy, right? Because if you're you're locked out of a bunch of benefits because of what you said before, um, you end up reinforcing that same situation in which you found yourself in the first place. Without a doubt, there's a what we say internally. Um, it's a negative um, geometric relationship between score and, and and sort of like poverty. It's a self fulfilling prophecy. It's sort of a downward spiral. If you screw up, because that's the score, the way the score is designed, uh, it's tracking like your you know your late payments, which compound. It's a it's a compounding effect that goes all the way to the bottom to zero, right? And you fall pretty pretty fast, and then it's very difficult to to shake that off because. You have seven years to uh, to recover because that stuff stays on your on your profile for seven years. You basically kept out of the economy for a long time, and uh, and you know forget morals and forget you know ethics in this case. Just think about purely pure efficiency from uh, from a societal perspective. It's not uh, it is always about people, but in this case, like we're creating massive inefficiency, and we have to address it right as a society. And and I think the technology has its place, uh, but ultimately, I think we 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 have to get together with policymakers and say, hey. Shit needs to change. Like we, we have to tweak this thing. That you cannot continue expanding uh, the the use of the score beyond its intended, um, you know, design. And you have to use products like Stellar to to gain more insight into what, whether this user is a good borrower or not, instead of you know extrapolating based on some arbitrary. What number. are the one of the things I love about uh, Stellar? What that I think it is very different from the the other, you know, it's a seemingly crowded space, right? You're getting yeah. into consumer credit and there's a bunch of apps that helps you, uh, help you educate yourself and, you know, improving your FICO score, whatever. And you took a, a uh, an education route that's different from the rest, which I think is extremely interesting, which is like using, instead of showing a bunch of good content and trying to convey the messages and then you might do yeah. whatever you want, you show them the way by doing. And, and so by little widgets in your app, which I think it's it's such an interesting concept, the widgetization of education, if you want, uh, that could be applied to many different areas. But like, can you maybe talk about yeah. that and how you actually uh, implement it? I love the way you articulated this. I was actually like, I've been struggling to articulate this, you know, creating widgets instead of, you know, educational content. I love it. What... I'll have to think of, I have to think of this and, and really implement it as well. So here's, here's, uh, here's what we did. Um, one of the things I realized early in life is that education comes with a massive cost. Uh, and, and, and literally, obviously, right, you have to pay for it in this country, but also comes with the cost uh, of other resources, your attention being one of them, right? And sometimes when you, you know, when, when you 
living your life, you just don't have those resources. Your time, your energy is dedicated to, you know, uh, taking care of your family, making money and, and so forth. And, and this is why we have that stratification in this country, because when you, you know, in a certain strata, you just don't have the ability or the energy to kind of rise above and try to, you know, game the system and, and, and find your path forward. And so anyway, we knew that anyone who claims to educate others uh, goes down a path of like some bullshit uh, ivory tower, you know, self-important nonsense that just will, will not propagate uh, to the right person because that person has no desire to be educated. They want knowledge. They want information. They want insights, but they have no desire to go through the educational process. And that's the problem. And we thought, well, what do they want and how do they learn? And what we learned early on, because we've actually tested this a lot through various different prototypes, we've learned that people want understanding, an understanding of a, of a complex concept through doing. And, uh, and it was apparent to us that is that if you create widgets or remember like wizards uh, and like uh, in, in Windows systems early on, like you go through the, the wizards, the wizard basically asks you basic questions and it gives you outputs, right? It, it, it's interactive. And in the process of being asked and then given answers, uh, you learn, you learn exactly what is happening. And that's what we wanted to create instead of saying, hey, here's a bunch of stuff about credit that you should memorize and, and, and you know use some sort of a, uh, technique to remember, you don't have to. Like, here's how this works. You link a bill, we pay a bill. You pay it back, it gets reported. <laughs> now you have uh, a line of credit that's reflected on your on on your uh, credit report with uh, with a zero balance in the month because you paid it off. And guess what? You have credit utilization ratio that's now smaller because you have more credit available to you, so your score goes up. By the way, also you paid your bill on time, so that gets reported. And, uh, and now you have a good positive payment history. Boom. You don't have to like have this abstract understanding of the whole thing works. You know that pay bills on time uh, and your credit goes up. And if you pay your bills on time, Stellar goes up faster, right? Because of the credit utilization. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's great. That's just a micro example of what we do. We want to obviously expand that well beyond just bill, bill pay, virtually all your money management. I mean, in, in shifting more towards a, a more macro discussion and, and going back to the root problem of, okay, this is what we have. There are companies like Stellar trying to solve solve this, but still we're in, in, in this, at this crux, which is, again, going back to my original comment, credit card debt, almost all-time high or 20-year high with interest rates that are far higher than the way they were way before. Um, yeah. what's, your, what's your take on the current consumer state? Because we hear CEOs and people saying, uh, it's more resilient than what we thought. And some others saying, uh, well, not really. So where do you stand in this debate? Yeah. So, I mean, I stand on the side of like consumers is suffering, right? <clears throat> what's, what's interesting, however, the reason I think there's an illusion of resilience is because uh, the pandemic was an unbelievable time for a consumer. It was, yeah. uh, it was a windfall, massive windfall on so many different levels, you know, government assistance, uh, markets, uh, this is the first time I think we've seen Main Street participate in capital markets uh, at the scale that they did, and and folks made money. And if you look at the data during the pandemic, credit scores were at all time highest because people paid down their debt. They had nowhere to yeah. go, sat at home, and they're like, "Why the fuck do I have this credit card? Let me pay it off." <laughs> I'm gonna share some some graphs afterwards because I remember listening to podcasts or whatnot or conversations in 2021 during in the middle yeah. of the pandemic and hearing like. Uh, buy now pay later companies and people saying 
actually during this crisis we're surprised how yeah, yeah no no shit you know they, they they have steamies they have like basically free money and you look at the delinquency rates and they were like extremely artificially low during the pandemic period exactly exact plus you know the you know all of the uh not forgiveness what was the word i'm looking for um um, forbearance. For, 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 forbearance, yeah, which is maybe yeah. kicking back in now for the student loans. We'll see. Um, but yeah, totally. But exactly. but so that, that is the discussion right now. If you look at that delinquency rate graph, if you want, um, mm -hmm. they're approaching pre-pandemic levels. Like we're yes. moving past that artificially low. But the, the, the question is, are we stabilizing or is it a mean reversion or are we in a dangerous trend upwards? I, I think... I don't, first of all, I, I don't think those things move in a way that is A, predictable, B, in a stabilizing way. I think they're oscillate. They always oscillate, right, on those things. We oscillate to the right and to the left. I think we, we're we going to go uh, way beyond mean, and then we probably, you know, settle as well, because we have to, right, in society. There are mechanisms to, to slow things down. I think high interest rate environment is actually good, uh, because it's, uh, it's slowing folks down uh, in many different ways. It's also damaging. Because uh, because people are paying more than they sort of budgeted uh, for before, and it's it, it's a damper. Uh, but at the same time, we're gonna blow we're gonna blow past our pre-pandemic mean. Uh, I have very strong feeling, and I'm not the only one who believes that. Jake Morgan made some predictions about it last year. Uh, I think we're pretty much on track with, with Jake Morgan's predictions in terms of consumer debt. It is uh, approaching all-time high. Uh, out of 17 trillion dollars in consumer debt, 500 billion of it is delinquent already. Uh, so it's and it's growing, right? So yeah, and compounding at crazy rates. That's the that's yeah. the difference vis-a-vis -vis other other yeah. periods of time where credit card uh, the nominal value came up, but like you're compounding yeah. very very fast. Exactly, the compounding definitely exacerbates the problem. Uh, yeah, so I and plus with an reintroduction of student loans, there's so many interesting things that are happening here that uh, that are going to speed up the process, in my opinion. I think I think we'll see consumers really sort of freak out, and we we're seeing regulators already sort of following pretty closely and coming after buy now pay later type companies. Uh, and anyone has done non traditional type lending, but uh, but you know sort of hiding usury rates behind you know sort of like no fee type stuff. Uh, that's gonna that's gonna probably go away or at least get constrained by regulation, uh, and uh, and consumers will have to go somewhere, right? And I think we're gonna see re uh, surgeons of traditional payday loans again uh because those you know those operations usually fill the gap uh when you know, yeah. traditional you know, players can't lamine uh i want to wrap up with a with a more uh broad question around you know the future of fintech and we can criticize fintech all day long but it's undeniable you know the last 10 years it has been a tremendous amount of progress yeah um but obviously, there are still many things to do in respect of financial inclusion and the things that we discussed before. Um, if you had to predict in the next 10 years or so, like where are we going to be in terms of financial inclusion and the things that fintech can be can be achieving? Yeah, and you know, I've written about this and uh, and I stand by my word and I've said this you know years ago uh, that fintech is the mechanism of financial inclusion, um, not because of like founders with noble missions. Uh, I think all that is great. It's it's because we're willing to take risk. Uh, fintech challenges the conventional operations, and as a result, you know we have much higher risk appetite. We, we're a lot more adventurous of, of, in terms of operations, and so we're willing to serve consumers who otherwise wouldn't be served or would be served by super predatory type um, type partners. So by default, we're creating inclusion. Um, I mean, yeah, look, it's it's evident. Companies like Chime, 
Another you know, interesting thing about FinTech is that it's forcing incumbents to change their practices as well to compete. I think that's probably one of the most meaningful and lasting impacts that FinTech will have on financial services. Uh, I mean, like Robinhood, for example, uh, you know, pioneering no fees and now virtually everyone else is doing it when they said it, it wasn't possible. Uh, you know, Capital One is competing, trying to compete with Chime by offering accounts to formerly unbanked people who would never be able to get account, account Capital One. Now there's like doors are wide open. Anyone can open an account. Um, it's interesting. And so what when I think about what we do, yeah, we're super ambitious. Yes, we are, we're on the freaking path to change culture. Uh, but even if we were to fail, right? And, uh, and I don't want to think about it, but even if we were to fail, our impact is going to be so lasting because what we do, we sort of redefine how to do credit. We redefine, and I we're already seeing incumbents looking pretty closely at what we're doing and, and thinking, oh man, we should be doing bill pay. Why can't why aren't we doing bill pay? Uh, in in terms of uh, you know credit building, and so that's that's pretty interesting. And I think that you know fintech will change the way people interact with finance and money. Uh, I hope that you know companies like Stellar are going to be there. At, you know, not just at the vanguard, but also will have this long lasting presence. Uh, and, and consumers' overall financial lives. Lamine, um, thanks for a terrific conversation. Before I let you go, any closing remarks? Uh, where can people find more about uh, Stellar, about you? Yeah, uh, I mean, Stellar, go to StellarFi.com, StellarFi.com, and uh, and go sign up for our app. That's the best way to learn about Stellar. It's uh, it's very accessible. It's it's affordable. Think about anything you pay us, you'll, you'll get back in savings. Uh, by the way, we affect credit in very, very directly. I don't want to do this plug, but I will. Uh, we just did a study, by the way, and we looked at different um, entry score level buckets, like folks with poor score versus excellent score, and everyone from poor to excellent gets a benefit. Uh, obviously, if you have a poor score, you know you get more, 77 points on average uh, increase, and then if you have excellent, you know, 800 plus. You still get a you know increase in your score if you use Stellar, but it's in you know 24, I think points, 23, 24 points. So nonetheless, it is it is very, 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 very effective. It helps you manage all your bills. Uh, if you want to learn about me, just uh, look me up. I'm I'm pretty pretty active in, in writing things and, and expressing my opinions about stuff uh, online and LinkedIn. Amazing. 